We are uh, thankful we have, we're going to continue in that special atmosphere of worship. We have a couple messages to bring, each a, a bit briefer than normal, but together trusting that the Lord will use this to impact each one of us. And so first I want to introduce Alyssa Picker, who's a long-term member of Abundant Life. She is a mom to Skye, who's in college, and John, who's in high school. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, she's been teaching BSF for the past 10 years, and so a gifted teacher. We look forward to hearing from her. Right after that, Valerie, will, Valerie Saunders will come and deliver a word, and Valerie, too, is a gifted teacher, having been uh, completed her master's many years ago in in um, ministry and with a particular emphasis in apologetics. She's been used in, uh, often by the Lord to speak at conferences, to teach an IBS class. She's overseen our baptism ministry, just a tremendously gifted woman of the Lord. Also a mom to Janelle and Janine. And uh, I think they're somewhere, right? Here, so, so welcome. But um, without further ado, let's pray. Let's pray for this time together. And we might go a little bit over time, but not by too much, so don't worry. Just be into the word that the Lord is saying to each of you. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for each of these women that you've blessed, that whose, your hand is clearly upon them over the years. Strengthen them now to deliver the word that you've put on their heart, to bless this congregation now and in the days ahead. And so we thank you, Lord, for this time. In your name, amen. Well, I'm at this stage now where the prop that I thought of this morning is an excellent illustration. We don't have one anymore, and that was a yo-yo. So you need to imagine in your brain a yo-yo. You know, you, you have the yo-yo in your hand, you're holding on to it, you release it, and then you catch it back, and you hold on, and you let it go, and you catch it back. And as I thought about uh, raising the next generation of God's people, it's much like that. It's a balance of holding on, and letting go, and holding on, and letting go. And so I want to talk about, from Luke 2, uh, Jesus being raised. What would it be like to be Jesus's mom and dad? <laughs> that would be something. But there's a lot of lessons in how they raised Jesus that apply to us, not just parents, but we'll see a whole community that helped raise the Son of God. And so we're going to get started on Luke 2. Um, and, and I want to look at the things, first of all, that, that they were holding on to, that God had them hold on to as Jesus was being raised. So look at me, um, look with me in, in Luke 2, but we're gonna, I'm just going to say a few things to preface it. Already, when we get to this passage in Luke 2, when Jesus is a small child, um, Mary and Joseph have had quite an experience as parents. In Luke 1, uh, they learned how to hold on to God's promises. I mean, it, God knew that Mary was going to have both a challenge and a privilege in raising Jesus along with Joseph. She was not yet married, she was extremely young, and she was a virgin. That would seem like the last person that God would choose to raise his own beloved son. But God knew that Mary and Joseph would need some promises to cling to. 
because their task was not going to be small, it was huge. And so God gave Mary some very reassuring and personal promises uh, in a bewildering time. Before Jesus was born, and then again while she was pregnant with Jesus, and then after he was born. Before he was born, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary, and in chapter 1, verse 31, he said, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. Well, Mary was understandably confused, and she asked how all this could happen because she was a virgin. And the angel told her in verse 35 of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And the angel also told her about her uh, aged and barren cousin Elizabeth and said, oh, she's already pregnant. I mean, what, what encouragement there. And then during Mary's pregnancy, again, God sent that confirmation and used Mary's cousin Elizabeth to confirm that this was a special baby. And so when Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, uh, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, as soon as Mary drew near to Elizabeth, Elizabeth experienced John the Baptist in her womb leap as he grew closer to the presence of Jesus in the belly of Mary. And the angel had said, for no word from God will ever fail. And Mary had accepted that from the angel saying, may your word uh, to me be fulfilled. And here Elizabeth later exclaimed about Mary, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So we see how important these promises are to help us know that we are in God's will and to get us through those tough times. And then again, after Jesus was born, God sent the shepherds to her. Uh, They were directed by God to visit Mary, and they again confirmed who this baby was. Uh, They had been alerted by angels that the Messiah had been at last born. And so they had spread the word concerning what was told them about this child Jesus, that he was the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And while they were glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, Scripture says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So God was already showing Mary the beginnings of what he was up to with her son. And Mary was paying attention. Well, not only did Mary and Joseph hold on to God's promises, they also held on to God's commandments. And we see in chapter uh, Luke 2, verse 39, a little out of order, I'm going 39 first. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Well, what had they done that was required by the law of the Lord? Three things. First of all, they had circumcised Jesus on the eighth day, which the law had required. Second, there were purification rites that the law of Moses required after childbirth. So Mary would have rested a month or two, uh, at least a month, in Bethlehem before coming to the priest who would accept her offerings and make atonement for her, and she would be ceremonially clean. And it's kind of interesting to see that they, they brought birds for that sacrifice because that lets us know that they didn't have enough money to pay for a lamb. So this was a couple that was struggling financially, and yet he had, God had provided for them. And third, in Exodus 13, God had commanded that every firstborn male, whether human or animal, 
was to be consecrated to the Lord, set apart for, for God's special use. And since Jesus was their firstborn, Joseph and Mary had taken Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. A little bit like when we have baby dedications up here. And while they were there, God showed them, Mary and Joseph, you're not going to be alone in raising this son. And so we see next Mary and Joseph in verses 25 through 38 of chapter 2, hold on to encouragement through God's people. First of all, there was Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man in Jerusalem. The Bible says he was waiting for the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit was on. All right. Uh, so the Bible said that, that Simeon was waiting for the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit was on him, and that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Well, there's a promise. But one day, the Spirit moved Simeon to go to the temple courts, and it just happened to be the day that Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus during the purification rites of the law. And so Simeon takes Jesus into his arms and immediately knows and praises God as he recognized who he was holding, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What an encouragement to Mary and Joseph. They marveled at what was said about Jesus. Simeon blessed them and told Mary more about what Jesus was destined to do. And then there was Anna. She was a prophet. She'd been married for seven years and then was a widow until she was 84 years old. She never left the temple, and all she did was worship God night and day, and she fasted and prayed. But she also came to them at that moment, and she gave thanks to God, and she spoke about the child to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So children are raised not just by parents, but they are raised by the community of God's people. And this community helped me raise my two children who have been here since birth. The next generation of godly people are not to be raised in isolation. Often God will give insight about a child to someone outside that child's family. God will bring his people alongside parents to encourage them as parents and to help them see God's hand in the lives of their children and to help teach their children about God. Like, our Safari Kids leaders and our, our house leaders and our GX leaders, and, and to help them uncover God's purpose in their lives. Um, so God might bring this help to your children here, uh, right, right as I said, through Safari Kids, house or GX, or he might bring insight through other ALCF members uh, that your family gets to know through growth groups or through fellowship groups or Bible studies or even as you are serving here, other people you're serving with. God might intend to bring encouragement to young people through you. And uh, Stacy couldn't have timed it better for me. So perhaps he is prompting you to be an Anna or a Simeon, whether it's to encourage parents or to bless and teach young people directly. There are young people who are coming to this church without their families. Some are very young and they're being brought by somebody else. Some are in high school and some are in college. 
Who is God asking you to reach out to and hold on to? Who is God wanting you to know well enough to see how God has uniquely gifted that young person so that you can uh, offer encouragement about God's great purpose for their lives? To whom is God asking you to share your own story of struggles and choices you made when you were their age? Well, God also brings help to youth through godly people outside of ALCF. He might put carrying adults uh, on a missions trip that young people go to. Or he might use parachurch ministries that are designed to support local churches uh, and come alongside them and direct some care towards youth like Young Life or, or Patriot Christian Ministries or Awanas or Bible Study Fellowship or Vacation Bible Schools or Christian Camps. And, you know, even geographically, we are a spread out congregation. And so sometimes other churches that are near where you live might have a midweek ministry that's just right on target for youth and where kids from their school go. And so they can develop a, a community of Christians they know right there, even if they aren't there, if that isn't their home church. Well, Next, Mary and Joseph learned to hold on to God's specific directions. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that at some point in Jesus' first two years of life, God warned Joseph that King Herod was going to be searching for Jesus so he could kill him. And so God told Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt until they got further instructions from the Lord. Well, now, historically, for God's people, Israel, Egypt was not the first safe place they would have thought to take uh, a child. Egypt had been a place where foreign gods and idols were worshipped. Egypt had been a place where their ancestors, like Lot, had become enamored with accumulating wealth and worldliness, and later that became a huge problem for them. Egypt had been the land where God's people had been enslaved and oppressed for 400 years before God delivered them out of Egypt. And yet, to this set of parents, God made it clear that they were to go to Egypt for their safety. After all, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And so Joseph quickly obeyed, and fled to Egypt with his young family until God told him the danger had passed. And then he returned to Israel, settling in Nazareth. God uses our obedience to accomplish his purposes, even when he calls us into very surprising situations. What a harrowing first few years of parenthood for them. I mean, don't you think that the Son of God should have a more comfortable start in life? But fortunately, God has the greater view. God has the greater view. He used every single thing that happened to this young family because he needed to fulfill three important prophecies about the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that out of Egypt he would call his son, and that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Now taken individually, that wouldn't make sense. They'd seem all conflicting, but God had made it work for them to all be true of Jesus. All scripture had to be fulfilled, and God used difficult circumstances and obedience to fulfill them. Well, next they held on to the evidence of God's blessing, and here we see in Luke 2, verse 40, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, sometimes our eyes are so focused on what isn't happening in a child's maturing process that we miss all that God is accomplishing in them. We can grow impatient with the speed at which a child learns or matures, 
But do you see in verse 40 that even Jesus had to grow and become strong? If God himself willingly submitted to a growing and strengthening process, don't you think we ought to allow some grace to ourselves and to others as we grow and strengthen too? I don't think I'll ever fully be grown. I'm still growing until the day he takes me home. But this verse is not just a call for us to be patient with the generation coming up behind us, but also to celebrate what God has already done because God is already filling the next generation of godly people with wisdom and God's grace is on them. God's track record so far across generations is perfect. He has developed true believers in every generation so far. He is not about to stop now. And so when we wring our hands and we roll our eyes wondering what will become of youth today, how closely are we looking? How are we missing what God is doing in those children and youth and young adults right here at ALCF? I see a commitment among today's young people to personal integrity, to justice, and a desire to satisfy their hunger by seeing in God's word what he says, all for themselves, rather than just to be spoon-fed. Today's young people are more socially driven and much more so than material, materially driven. They are a forgiving and welcoming generation. They are adept in finding ways to share about God with those who don't yet know him. It is exciting to be around young believers these days. I enjoy it. And so we need to listen to their ideas about how to advance the gospel of Jesus to the world that is waiting to know him and to support them as they do. Now, surely there were neighbors in Nazareth who couldn't have cared less about that kid Jesus down the street, and they missed out. I mean, surely there were others who did watch and saw qualities in Jesus that were special, and they watched him closely. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to live in Jesus' neighborhood and watch him grow up? Now, I'm not suggesting that you have another son of God living down the street from you, but you do have some of Jesus' youngest friends living around you, friends that he is committed to maturing into followers for life, friends that he is blessing right before your eyes, friends who will carry the baton of faith in God's word to the generation after them. And so what are you missing out on that's happening right before you? For those of you who are noticing God's work, who are you pointing it out to? To them? To their parents? To us? Are you finding ways to allow young people to use their gifts to serve the body of Christ? Well, the other thing they hold, held on to was to worshiping God. In 241, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So Mary and Joseph held to a regular pattern of worship. God had created several festivals for his people to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate together. It wasn't convenient, but it was commanded. And while worshiping God and teaching about God at home and among family were essential to the expression and continuation of faith, coming together with the larger body of believers was not to be neglected. And sometimes we might struggle to get out of bed in time to drive a little ways down the freeway or, uh, to come to church or to go to Bible study or growth group, convincing ourselves, oh, we can let this slip. And I'll just attend Bedside Baptist instead. But God is honored when his people come together to praise him the way we did this morning. We really honored God together. 
and to worship him and to pray to him and to serve him together. God loves his church. Christ is the head of the body. We're not meant to be a bunch of floating body parts. So Mary and Joseph took Jesus every year to Passover in Jerusalem. And if you think about the significance of that event, it's amazing. Because Jesus himself would one day on the cross become the world's Passover lamb. What a privilege for Mary and Joseph to unknowingly prepare their son for his greatest purpose. Mary and Joseph didn't make this Passover trip optional. They didn't leave it up to their kids to decide whether or not they would come worship the Lord with God's people. There is a time for parents to hold on and a time for the parents to let go. But coming together to worship with the body of Christ is a commandment that parents need to hold on to. And if you have a child in your life who doesn't have parents bringing that child to the people of God to celebrate with, I didn't have that as a child, then maybe you need to be the one to offer it and bring them like somebody brought me. Well, a lesson we can learn from this is that keep holding on to God for he has a greater view. Keep holding on to God for he has a greater view. You know, whenever I see a child in a parking lot, I require that child to hold my hand. It is a firm rule. (laughs) Why is that? Because I have a greater view. I can see things that the child is not tall enough to see. I can see dangers that are blocked by the cars on either side. And I also have experience. I know what can happen when a child darts out into an unseen danger. And so God has called each of us to raise the next generation of children, whether we're parents or not. And so if you're, I mean, really, if you're in a parking lot and you saw any child in danger, would you really just sit back and go, "Hmm, not my problem? Of course not. So what children or young adults is God putting into your life to hold on to as they grow? And what view has he given you of dangers that they cannot yet see? And what are you going to do about it? So as we hold on to the child with one hand, we need to remember to hold on to God tightly with the other, making sure, because we're still kids of his, so we want to make sure he's holding us and keeping us safe from dangers that there may be. Well, now, there are seasons for holding on, and there are seasons for letting go. So here comes the letting go part. Uh, Letting go of being there every moment, verse 43, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, obviously, Mary and Joseph had raised Jesus to belong to a trusted community of believers. God's people in Nazareth journeyed together to Jerusalem and back for Passover uh, and the other festivals too. And you know, there's no shaming here or judgment of Mary and Joseph for losing track of Jesus. With Jesus at the age of 12, Mary and Joseph had learned to give him more freedom than a younger child would be able to handle. And they had made sure there were other adults around him, uh, relatives and friends keeping an eye on him. And clearly Jesus had never given them a reason to think he would run away. I mean, he was Jesus, right? The sinless son of God. And yet, when they looked for Jesus, they didn't find him where they expected him to be. Isn't it amazing that God saw fit to entrust the son of God to the care of parents who lost track of him? So they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And I remember losing John at Great America. He was four years old and it was five very long minutes. 
and I was desperate. He had gone one way, we'd gone the other coming off of a ride, and I ran to security guards and begged them, can you please help me find my son? And it was five minutes, and they got on their walkie-talkies, and within seconds they had him. But then I did the walk of shame past all the parents who are looking like, oh, she lost her kid, you know, and I just felt so terrible about it. But you know what had happened? John had done exactly what I had trained him to do. He had found a woman with kids, and he'd gone to her for help. And I figured that was a safe bet, find a mom, and she's gonna, she's gonna have my back as another mom, and she helped him to, to be okay. Well, I wonder if that might be how Mary and Joseph felt when they finally found Jesus. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Yeah, I bet they were astonished. I mean, three days? I don't care how old your kid is. That's a long time to go without your parents hearing from you. But, but Jesus was calm and comfortable where he was, talking to the teachers in the temple. Can you imagine the scene with Joseph and Mary at the door, kind of watching what was going on and all these people being amazed and listening to their sons say things that were beyond the wisdom of a 12-year-old? And yet their training, going to Jerusalem and back, opening the scriptures to him, giving him that love for God, here he was showing it out. What an amazing thing that they got to see that happen. And so Mary said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So she's trying to assert that Jesus, you're my son, right? And she includes Joseph. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus, we hear his first recorded words in his life. And he says, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? What a couple of statements. We know that Jesus is not being a mouthy, smart Alec because he's not a sinner. So was his question genuine? Does he really not know why they were searching for him? Or was he saying, I've never given you reason not to trust me. Why should I now? Or maybe he was saying, didn't you know I have to be in my father's house? Jesus had business with his father and he knew it. And so began the process of letting go. And you know what? He submitted to them because they didn't understand yet what he was saying. And he went back and let them raise him up. But he was preparing them for the time when he would have to leave because he needed to be about his father's business. And that's what we do with our children, with the children of this church, is we hold on and we let go. We hold on and we let go. And we have to trust God to let us know when to do that. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart, even before she had to let go. She was going to have to let him go all the way to the cross. And it was not going to be easy. Letting go of children is difficult, but essential. So how is God asking you to let go of the young people in your life? Where is he asking you to trust him with them? For some of you, it will mean having less influence for a while. You who are parents, when they get older, we need to find others who will love on them, who will speak to them and listen to them. For others of you, it will mean having more influence. You'll be the catchers of kids. Who has he put in your life and how will you receive them? What a privilege to raise the next generation of God's people. Lord, thank you that you have done that here I pray that you would use this time to prompt hearts to respond and to help raise the next generation of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Valerie?
I think I'm good with the wireless mic. So, if you guys give me 20 more minutes, I will promise I won't be too long with this message. <laughs> Whatever I want, okay, amen. Hallelujah, thank you, Lord. And so, um, the title of my message, continuing with what Alyssa had to say, I'm talking about Jesus. And the title of the message is, There is No Greater Love Than Jesus. And we're coming from the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 to 22. And it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And so um, we start with um, the people of God in 1 Samuel chapter 8 rejected God. They said, God, we no longer want you as our king. We want a king like all of the other people that are living in this area. And so Samuel was displeased and he was saddened and he prayed about it. And in verse uh, seven, the Lord said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. So then in 1 Samuel chapter nine, we see that Saul is anointed as the next king. And Saul, very soon after he was anointed, he was an arrogant man, he was rebellious, and he said, um, you know, he was gonna do these things that God didn't allow the king to do at that time, only the prophet. So God rejected him as the king. He said, that's it, you've gotta go. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that David is anointed king. But when David was anointed king, God did not immediately put him as king. Actually, what happened is he went into the service of Saul because the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and he was just vexed all day. So then David would play the harp for him. David was his armor bearer. And then David also was a fighting man. So David went out and he fought battles and the people said, well, David is killing more people than Saul. So Saul got really jealous of him. And so David, um, at some point when Saul died, David became the king. And we don't see that until 2 Samuel chapter five. But the thing about Saul that was uh, different from David was Saul would just go out and, on his own and do whatever. 
But David, every single time he was going to do something, he inquired of the Lord. So he never went out on his own. He always inquired of the Lord. And so we see now in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, the first verse, David is um, sitting on his throne and he's having a conversation with the next prophet who is Nathan. And he's saying to Nathan, you know, I am in this wonderful palace and God is in a tent. The ark of God is in a tent. And so that's just not right. So I need to build a temple for God himself. And so Nathan said to him, whatever you say to do, go ahead and do it because God is always with you. And so um, that night, um, God said, well, no, Nathan and David, that's not how it's going to be done. So he gave a revelation to Nathan. We see it in verse 8. And Nathan comes back and he talks to David and he says, The Lord took you as a little shepherd boy. You were a nobody and a nothing. He took you out of the field tending sheep and he made you king. And if that were not enough, he now is going to call you great. Your name is going to be one of the greatest names among all of the men who have ever walked on this earth. So we see that in Matthew chapter 1, 1. We see the genealogy of Jesus. And we see it talks about Jesus, the son of David. And we see the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. We see the genealogy of Jesus. And so... David starts to sit down and he's just really overwhelmed. And he's in awe of God the way we are and the way I am so often. When you just really think about the goodness of the Lord and how great he is, it just takes over you sometimes and you just have to weep in his presence because he's so great. And so David is sitting down and he's having this conversation. He goes into the presence of God and he says... God, I cannot believe this. Like, really? You are dealing with me, a mere man. You are saying that you took me, you have stopped all of my enemies, and you have taken me, this little shepherd boy, out of the field, and you have made my name great. And if that were not enough, O sovereign Lord, you are making my name great for the future. Every single person will know about me. Lord, is this how you deal with men? Is this how you deal with me, sovereign Lord? So he was overwhelmed. And the answer is yes. This is how the Lord deals with us. He deals with all of us the exact same way as he dealt with King David. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to tell you this little story about how God gave David a future, how God gave me a future. So I didn't know I had this little white car, and it was a standard or a stick shift. So I parked the car, and I went into the house. About an hour later, one of the neighbors came, and he said, um, don't you have the little white car? 
And I said, yes. And Carlton and I were standing, we were looking, the car was not in the driveway. And so we started to run to see what happened to the car. So the street that I live on, it goes up a little incline. And then my driveway, which I'm in a court, it's to the left, and it goes up a little incline. So God had to wait until I went into the house because if I had seen this, I would have started running after the car and I would have been killed. So the car rolled down the driveway, it made a right turn, it rolled down the street, and it passed the first house, it passed the second house, it passed the third house, and it landed in the yard of the fourth house. And if that were not enough, O sovereign Lord, the car jumped the curb, and it landed in between two of the biggest redwood trees that you have ever seen. And the redwood trees were about 10 feet apart. And so I'm in awe of the Lord that he gave me a future because that car could have killed a child playing out on the street. It could have killed one of my neighbors. It could have taken out the house of one of the neighbors. But I'm still standing today before you because the Lord gave me a future. Amen, that's, that's a praise right there. The next story that we're gonna see that God gave this woman a future as well. He gave King David a future. He gave me a future, and not just through the car, but he gave me a future through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see the story in Luke chapter seven, verses 36 to 48. And it says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. We see this woman's story in all four Gospels. 
When you see a story about anybody in the gospel and you see it one time, that's huge. But when you see the story of someone in all four gospels, the Lord is talking to us and he's trying to tell us something. And what he's trying to tell us about this particular woman is that she loved the Lord so much and she knew that Jesus was this special man. So she went to Jesus at, as an uninvited guest into this house and she knelt at his feet and she cleansed his feet. Unlike Simon, who was the host of this house, who was supposed to do this, and I'm going to change the story just a little bit, and I'm going to say, Simon probably thought, I'm an important man, Jesus is an important man, and I need to invite this important man to my house. You know, because people are going to maybe think a little bit more highly of, of me if I invite this important man. And the reason we knew there was a difference between the sinful woman and uh, Simon is because Simon said, if this man were a prophet. So he really didn't believe the miracles and the things that um, Jesus did. This woman believed it because she gave her all in all, everything that she owned, you know, her public persona. Everybody in the town knew that she was a sinful woman, you know, but she didn't really care. She cared about Jesus and that she just wanted to touch him. You know, and Galatians 3 and 28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Jesus Christ. So Jesus wasn't afraid to touch this woman, but Jesus knew her heart and he knew the heart of Simon. And so the 500 denarii versus the 50, I'm gonna change that around a little bit too. And I'm gonna say that Simon probably thought, you know, I'm gonna change the money into sin. Maybe 50 times a year I sin. But the sinful woman who uh, loved the Lord much because she was forgiven more, maybe she had 500 sins per week. And I wanna tell each of you and myself, all of us, we are all that 500 denarii woman. We are all the same sinners like this woman. So the Lord has to come and he has to forgive us. We are not better than her. You know, and so at the end of all of this, the Lord gives her a future because he forgives her of her sin. So the Lord gave David a future. He gave me a future. He gave this sinful woman a future. And the last passage that I want to say um, is John chapter 13. And it's verses 1, 5, 12 to 15. And it says... It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. <clears throat> and so the Lord gives us a future. He washes the feet of his disciples. He gives them a future. And he does what not one person in that house that the sinful woman and Simon was in. He washed their feet. Simon, who was the host of the house, did not wash the feet of Jesus. He did not even have his servant go and wash the feet of Jesus. Because when you're walking around and you're in your sandals and your feet are dusty and dirty, you need to have your feet cleaned when you come into the house of a guest. But everybody, Simon, the people in the house, even his disciples did not want to do such a menial task and put themselves in the position, you know, that they would be looked down upon because they actually wash the feet of someone else. And my question to you as I finish up this message is, are we willing to wash the feet of other people? And by that I mean, are we willing to get out of our comfort zone and out of the comfort level that we have and do something special for someone else? You know, are we willing to maybe um, leave the comfort of our house and maybe go witness to somebody that needs the Lord? You know, are we willing to um, come? We keep asking over and over on Sundays, you know, for people to come and use their gifts for the body of Christ. Are we willing to come, you know, to help? You know, are we willing to go to a homeless shelter and, you know, feed the homeless and feed people? You know, are we willing to, um, you know, what is it for you? What is it for you that you know that God wants you to do, that he's calling you to do, that you know that you should do, and you haven't done it? Let us wash the feet of one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given David a future, Lord. You have given the sinful woman, which is all of us, a future, Lord. You have given me a future, Father. And every single person that is here who has, is saved by the blood of your Son, you have given them a future, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for giving us that future. And we thank you, Lord, that there is no greater love than you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.